It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, brought to you in association with Unibet Poker. My name is David Lappin. I'm alongside my great friend Dara O'Carney, and this is our 50th episode. This week we will be doing a lot of reminiscing and we will be welcoming back to the show some familiar faces. WSOP bracelet winner and Oscar nominee Jennifer Tilly returns to beguile us with her legendary wit. We will also be chatting to our most popular past guest, Dara's wonderful wife Mireille, who is going to give us even more insight into her life with my co-host. Diva will join us for our strategy segment looking at a key hand from the recent Unibet Open Dublin main event final table but first Well instead of a topical segment this week we thought we'd flip the format a little and ask you to ask us some questions Dara and I have a list of about 60 great questions sent in by our audience and we're going to get through as many as we can isn't that right Dara? Yep looking forward to it Well first up Matthew asks Dara who will you leave your turtle rucksack to in your will? I guess I'll probably give it back to Fiona. Fiona gave it to me when she was 10 or 11. She decided that she had outgrown the turtle rucksack, but I clearly hadn't. So she gave it to me as a present. The amount of money that that rucksack has carried over the years, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Martin from Canada asks, what's the funniest thing that has happened behind the scenes while recording the chip race? Um, I think probably the funniest thing that's happened behind the scenes was actually recording with Ian Simpson in his bedroom in Dublin during the Irish Open. We had to do a news piece and all the way through the news piece, Ian kept breaking winds. Now, that's tragic enough as it is, but then I had to go back and edit the piece and cut out all the times he broke wind, which I have to admit was one of the lowest points of my life. (laughs) Yeah, I think the funniest thing that happened for me was when we interviewed Parky on our second season and it happened during the Irish Open. I can't believe you're going to tell this. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the censored version. So I was worried that since we were going to be recording the interview out in City West when it was full of drunk Norwegians, that we would have trouble with sound quality. So I arranged with a non-drunk Norwegian, Espen Jørstad. I said, can I use your room and also your microphone so I don't have to lug a microphone out? And he said, yeah, sure, fine. Day comes, uh, I go up to his room, knock on the door, no sign of anybody in the room. I start ringing him. I hear his phone ringing on the inside. So I know he's in there. <laughs> Now it's getting up to the time we have to do the interview with Parky. So I go and touch base with Parky, tell him, okay, just, I just need a few more minutes. I go up, knock on the door, knock repeatedly. Eventually, Espen answers and it's clear he's literally just woken up, invites me into the room and explains for reasons which became very clear quickly when I realized that we weren't alone in the room, that <laughs> we weren't going to be able to do the interview there. He did at least give me his laptop and his microphone. So I went off and if anybody listens to the Parky episode, they'll hear a lot of clinking in the background. That's because the quietest place we could find was the restaurant. <laughs> OK, what's the next one? Question from James McGeorge. What's the worst error you've made at the poker table? Wow, the worst error I've made. Um, I've probably tried to bluff you once or twice. That was a mistake. What's the worst error? I do know my favorite story was when I slow roll that guy at the UK IPT. Not something I would normally do. Really? Um, and so maybe maybe it was an error of judgment in the greater sense of things because it was me being very vindictive and petty. But what basically happened was a guy slow rolled me for quite a small pot early on in the tournament. But obviously, you know, it was now programmed in my brain that if I have the opportunity, I will do this back. And I remember he opens the cutoff, as I recall, and I think I flatted kings on the button and we go to the flop and the flop comes king, king, six. 
and he bets into me and I take a little bit of time and I call and then the turn comes another brick, another deuce or something and he bets into me and I call and then on the river he's been left with like roughly a pot-sized bet and a fairly inconsequential card again, I think probably like a nine or something and he goes all in and I take a you know little moment or two and eventually call and he turns over the jacks and I tap the table and I throw my can in the muck knowing because I'd been watching very carefully earlier that we had a very vigilant dealer who would not allow in an all-in situation the cards that were being mucked to not be shown. So she flips over the cards to reveal the quad kings. Well, the look on his face was brilliant, but I do remember most of all from that running over to you like a giddy schoolchild and explaining what a genius I was and you just looked at me like I was pathetic. Yeah, well, you were relying on the dealer to not make mistakes, so... I didn't muck them really far in. You know, I could have dived on the table and saved them. Fair enough. What about you, Dara? What's your worst mistake? I think I made a fair few mistakes. They're usually related to my color blindness, putting out the wrong chips. But I guess one that's pretty memorable is I remember being pretty short stacked in a tournament once. I think it might have been an EMOP and waiting for a hand and eventually looking down at Ace Nine suited under the gun. You know, not ideal, but I was pretty short, so I went with it. It goes full, 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 full. Big blind thinks about it for a while, eventually calls, and he had tens. So I turn over my hand proudly, think, oh, okay, well, at least I've got the suit going for me and I have the overcard. And the whole table looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. And I was like, what's wrong with them all? Like, ace nine suited, that's a perfectly respectable hand. <laughs> and then I looked down at my hand and it was actually um, nine of diamonds, four of hearts. Ouch. So, yeah, that wasn't, that was not a fair <laughs> the, moment. The O'Carney image was destroyed for years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and they'd seen me fold patiently for about an hour and then just just, just go with 9-4 off under the gun. <laughs> well, the next question I have here is from George Devine, our good pal George. Do you ever drink alcohol while grinding, Dara? I've never seen you drinking while playing live. That's not true anyway. I know that for a start. Yeah, I, have, I, I do sometimes drink when I'm playing live. Obviously, I'd never drink in a big buy-in game. <laughs> high roller in Dublin. <laughs> high roller in Dublin. Which high roller? A week ago. Oh, okay. Well, that was like a 2K. <laughs> And that oh, was Jack. Sorry, that, that, sorry was it, that was an inverted commas sorry, high roller. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. That was uh, Jack Sinclair plying me with drink. Jack was still in the afterbuzz of winning WSEP Europe, so it would seem rude to turn down uh, six points of Guinness. Six points of Guinness <laughs> as it happened, and somehow and as, as chip leader, maybe I should do it more often. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Um, certainly, I never do it online. That's for sure. That just seems like a recipe for disaster. Uh, also, from George, do you put a limit on the number of bevies you drink, or are you all in once you start? Well, first of all, I'm so insulted that I wasn't asked the exact same question you were. Of, uh, I think you know, everybody's seen you drink gin on Twitch while playing online, so there's no well, mystery well, there, David. Well, Twitch is a different monster. For me, when I was on Twitch, I felt like it was more like performance art, and I needed to drink just <laughs> to... Uh, <laughs> Are you, really, like are you really saying your Twitch was performance art? Yeah, it would do a very small audience in a poorly turned out theatre. <laughs> you, you are known for I your grandiose statements, but that might be the most grandiose ever. Your Twitch was performance art. Performance art playing to the back of the room with only seven people in the front row. That was it. <laughs> I would generally not drink, to be honest. Uh, I know people might laugh to hear that because they probably have seen me drinking copious amounts of gin on Twitch. I would have now as a sneaky gin and tonic or a pint for the last level of the night playing live it's already like, sneaky I know yeah I can see where this is going this is it you've been trying to you know have an intervention with me there I just didn't <laughs> think you heard George Devine's question in this uh, question to finally ask me about my drinking 
Uh, no, the truth, the truth be told, I wouldn't drink too much. Maybe for the odd, like, fun cash game with friends, maybe for the last level of the night, and always, always while playing on Twitch. <laughs> well, next question is from Michael Leonard. What is your biggest pet peeve when playing live tournaments? I mean, I really hate when I see players who see themselves as being good players either show off to recreational players or even lecture them on how they play their hands. That really annoys me. First of all, it's incredibly rude. And the motivation always seems to be to show how clever the person is. But really, I think like you're, you're actually the opposite of clever because if you have somebody in the game that you think is weaker than you, then you should be trying to keep them in the game and not trying to educate them, but actually make sure that they're having lots of fun so that they'll want to go on playing. And this is the exact opposite of that. So that's probably the thing that annoys me the most. Yeah, here, here. Two questions from more TBC. Uh-oh. What variant of an eight game mix are we both worst at? And if you were to live with each other's partners, whose partner would crack first? I was thinking that first question was a little too serious. I was waiting for there had to be there had to be a kicker. I'm not very good at stud high low. Yeah, I'm pretty good at stud, but I mean for someone who's played as little stud as I have, I guess maybe Raz. I haven't played much Raz, and it's sufficiently different from what I am good at. In terms of our partners, this is a very uncontroversial. Mireille would not only crack first, but would crack something over my head I first. Think she'd probably crack your skull, loading. yeah, as soon as you <laughs> opened your mouth. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very easy question. Also from more TBC, Dara, what are the odds of you not mentioning you're an ultra runner as a setup to any question in season eight? I'd say they're really long odds. Um, I, I usually try to expand the horizon outside of just poker to show that we both did stuff before. From Donna, wonderful Donna, great supporter of the show. What's the worst argument we've had? Oh, wow. What's the worst argument we've had? I think the one standout thing is that we actually don't argue very much, which I think most people wouldn't believe because they would assume two kind of quite, um, I don't know what the word is, trying to find polite words now, David. Uh, <laughs> two arseholes. Opinionated arseholes. Yeah, that's probably fair. Um, but yeah, I think people would assume that because of the nature of both of us and how we're both quite stubborn probably as well, that we would end up being kind of the immovable object and the irresistible force. But actually, I'm struggling to even think of any. Um, yeah, I am too, any major ones. I mean, I actually think we have a really good communication style between us where we both can say absolutely anything and we can argue at the point and we don't take it personally. We know that the other person is just making an argument and we're both open to changing our mind. And it's really just a question of arguing our side as well as possible. But then at the end, deciding, okay, well, maybe I'm wrong on that or maybe you're wrong. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that, even though I think that's probably not the answer people were looking for. (laughs) Um, Okay, got a good one here from Barry Carter. You recently started dipping your toes in the 25K circuit, Dara. How different are they compared to the 5 and 10K main events you've played before? Smaller fields, I guess, is probably the biggest thing. To be honest, they're not that big a difference. I mean, people still play the way they play. I think maybe mentally the first time I played one, I thought, oh, this is is a different level now. But then you see, you know, Leon opening 8-4 offsuit and peeling a three bat. And you realize, no, this is the stuff that you see in every tournament, irrespective of buy-in level. The one thing I would say is that the fields are far more polarized. You have the best players in the world and then you have some really rich people who might not even bother with five or ten k's because they're too small for them a uh, question from david gill whatever happened to the firm oh that's a good question i think it just kind of naturally wound itself up i hope it's okay to say dara and i had quite a big conversation a few years before it wound up where our biggest fear as stakers and this is something maybe we could share with you is uh, there might be people who stake out there that the biggest scary point you could reach is where you have loads of horses 
all playing quite high or mid-level games and then the ecosystem changes so drastically that most of them become unprofitable over the course of a year and maybe variance obscures that and you don't realize how much you're in and then you lose back all the money you ever put into staking and more and i think the one thing i think you and i share dara is we probably have a healthy paranoia about the state of the game and how people are improving all the time and it ebbs and flows like it arguably has become a little bit easier in the last year maybe there's a bit more money in the economy but at the same time like that was a pretty tough patch a couple of years ago and i think it was before that time we were looking to take a kind of a, a more serious action on, on whether we wanted to continue with a big stable of players like we had previous yeah i think the term i used at the time was the, the poker apocalypse and the, yeah. when you look at poker careers most poker careers you know in the same way that all political careers end in defeat most poker careers or at least a lot of them end with the player going bust realizing too late that they're not a winning player anymore and maybe they don't go bust but they lose back a lot of the money that they won on the way up absolutely yeah no and and then just as a kind of addendum to that the firm in terms of the individuals are all healthy alive and well in the poker world myself and dara obviously still grinding away here dara davy who lives next door to me has been doing very well the last few years as well jason Tompkins has had some recent success too guys we staked like nick newport kevin colleen are all doing fantastically well james noonan there only a few weeks ago winning the millie he's one of our alumni porrick o'neill god the list does go on actually they're also in the game and still doing well and i mean the firm originally started as a kind of a group of friends who bought pieces of each other in tournaments swapped travel to events and so on and that still continues to this day i mean we still swap when we play the same events i still swap with most of the firm lads and we do have a sort of an annual get together when our maltese expat comes back <laughs> yeah question here from more tbc oh you like this one dara yeah you drink a bottle of gin and i have to run a marathon who's worse off the next day <laughs> i think you're worse off for sure um <laughs> The thing is, yeah, I'm not a big drinker, but I don't really get bad hangovers either. I, I have sort of good recovery overnight. So I think I've, if I drank a bottle of gin, I'd be probably reasonably okay the next day, whereas I'm not sure you'd even be able to get out of bed if you ran a marathon. No, I, I do want to, as a little caveat to say that I do a little bit of running and, and Daryl will um, yeah. hopefully back me up on this. We we did a bit of running in Las Vegas yeah. at the World sure, Series. Actually, and we yeah, running. Over a shortish distance, you're definitely pretty athletic. I could imagine you you know, being a decent 5K runner. It's just marathon is a very long distance for somebody yeah. who uh, is not naturally a long distance runner. No, I've got to totally agree with you there. I think I would be the worst off. Uh, question from AOD. Uh, in 10 years time, is No Limit Hold'em still the most popular poker format? And if not, which game do you see being most popular? Yeah, I think No Limit Hold'em will still be the most popular. It's just too sort of perfect a game with all the equilibriums the way they are, mm. over cards versus under pairs being kind of a flip. And there's a load of kind of internal dynamics within the game that I think just make it all the different decision points. That being said, I think PLO will grow for sure. I think the more people who get into PLO realize what a great game it is. I also think short deck sounds like possibly a game of the future. For as long as I've been playing, people have been saying, oh, Hold'em is going to fade away and PLO will become popular or Omaha Low or mixed games. And I, I just don't see it happening. I think probably the best thing about Hold'em is that it's a very simple game. So like when people start watching poker on TV and they don't really know the rules, you can explain very quickly in five minutes like the old TV programs used to do the game and they'll get it. With PLO, you know, four cards, you only use two from your hand. There's so many permutations and combinations. It's just the game is more complex. And then the other mixed games all suffer from that too. They're basically much more complex from a beginner's perspective than No Limit Hold'em, which is why I think you probably hit the nail on the head when you say Short Deck. Short Deck is actually simpler than Hold'em. 
Absolutely. Next question. Where do you get the time to play all those tournaments, either live or online, Dara? How do you balance work life and family life? Well, before I ask this question, I can hear you clicking in the background. We're recording this and you've got a sneaky table off to one side. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm actually playing 5K online as we record this. I really suck at balance. I mean, that's just not my personality to do 10% this, 10% that, 10% something else. I'd just decide what I want to do and I dedicate myself to it 100%. Also, obviously, shout out to Mrs. Doak who basically does all the other stuff that I would have to do if I was on my own. Maybe as a couple, we're balanced, but uh, as individuals, we're definitely not balanced. Another question from more TBC. You're only allowed to interview one more player, dead or alive, before your voice is taken away. Who do you interview? <laughs> and that's kind of an easy one for me. I was always fascinated by the character of Stu Unger. I guess I read his biography by Nolan Dalla when I was probably just learning the game and I just thought it was a great story and I was fascinated by him as a person. And I, I do often wonder whether he was one of the few old schoolers whose mind would have been just so sharp and so keen for new information. I think he would have worked within all the new paradigms as they changed and whatnot. I think he's somebody who, uh, had he obviously kept on the straight and narrow, which is maybe not something his personality could ever have let him do, I think his game could have been one that evolved with the best. Yeah, I'll go with somebody who's living. I'll leave the grave robbing to you. I think for similar reasons, I'd like to interview Phil Ivey. I mean, he's one guy who really hasn't done very many interviews and nobody's really got much out of him. And he is a fascinating character in that he's been at the top for so long and he's something of an enigma. In fact, he's very much an enigma still. Whereas, you know, if you compare him to his peers, say like Helmut or Negreanu, pretty much everything has been asked of them and answered. But I think there's still a lot uh, that we don't know about Phil. Yeah, I think Phil's a really good answer to that one as well. I think we have a few questions from Tony Bates and to wrap up. Yeah. Do you want to take the first few there? Yeah, okay. I guess we'll do these one at a time. Uh, first of all, are there any questions you regret asking or not asking your guests? Oh, that's a great question. Yes, there are. I feel like even though I know why we did it, we did let Helmuth off the hook a little bit when he gave his answer about full tilt. And he was talking about Ferguson and how Ferguson hadn't kind of anything to do with the bad stuff that happened. And, you know, what was he supposed to do? I don't know. You and I, Dara, you know, in the UK and Ireland were very well known. And I think we would tackle most poker players from a very even position. But when we had Helmuth on, I couldn't help even myself feeling a little bit in awe that we had gotten this interview that you'd actually managed to rank him into our studio and yeah probably just maybe a little bit of deer in the headlights didn't ask the hard question that should have been asked in that moment yeah yeah i do remember that that interview was quite tricky it was obviously a thrill to get phil on it was also clear he wasn't in the best of moods at the start of the interview and i remember thinking two minutes interview this might be a five minute interview where he just keeps saying positivity 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 go buy my book and that's not going to be much good so i think we actually did quite a bit of work to sort of put him at ease and get him talking get him relaxed and having done that then it, it felt like a more sort of matey atmosphere I don't think there's any questions we regret asking because for one thing, this show is edited, so we just cut them out (laughs) if if we regret them after the thing. Uh, In terms of questions not asked, I mean, I guess we've given some of our guests a somewhat easy ride, not just Phil, but other guests, because it's not really our bag to sort of go after guests and and be confrontational. I guess probably the most confrontational we've been was with Will Kasuf. 
But for example, when we had Jonathan Little on mentioning full tilt, I mean, Jonathan was a full tilt pro as well and actually lost his deal in a scandal where he had other people playing on his account to maximize return to him. We decided not to ask that question as well because it was, you know, a 10 year old question and he had rehabilitated himself since. I mean, if we were a different type of show, we probably would ask more pointed questions to try and stir up controversy. True. Although that being said, it kind of takes us to the next question, which is which guests change your perception of them following an appearance. I'd actually sort of put Phil into that category as well in, in the sense that he was a lot more down to earth eventually, as you say, maybe there was some warming up, but he ended up being a lot more down to earth and talked about his family life and his therapy and his childhood in a way that I didn't expect. I had heard him dabble with those kind of topics on other interviews, but never quite go as deep as he did with us. So that was kind of nice to hear in a way. And it does humanize somebody who is essentially sort of playing a panto villain when they go and play live poker. Yeah, I think with Phil, when he came on, we, we sort of got like Phil Hammond, the character at the start, because he doesn't know either of us from Adam. So why would he, you know, not be this carefully constructed persona? But as we spoke to him, we sort of got behind that and he certainly became much more relaxed and let his hair down. And as you said, became much more human. Um, um, thinking in terms of the guests who's changed my perception of them the most. Wow, that's a struggle now. I'm actually going to have to think about this. Uh, oh, I think I know who might be your person because yeah. I remember you mentioning it afterwards. I remember you thinking, and you didn't know him very well beforehand, that Charlie Carroll oh, yeah. seemed yeah. to be yeah. sort of uh, up himself or, or whatever. And then having got the chat with him, he was a lot more grounded and down to earth. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're spot on. Yeah, I had a very negative perception of Charlie before our interview with him because of the way his, you know, drug use had been presented, um, certain other aspects, the sort of peacocking at tournaments. So I just assumed this is just another young guy who's who's full of himself and thinks he knows everything that's important to know. As, as David Bowie sang once, there's nothing as ugly as a teenage millionaire thinking it's a whiz kid world. That was kind of the perspective I came at from on Charlie. And yeah, Charlie was much more down to earth, much more personable, much, much more interesting to talk to and more open to debate than I thought he would be. Yeah. Going back to the question about questions we regret not asking, I'm actually reminded now of when we had Phil Lack for a live interview in Las Vegas, one that you can actually watch on our YouTube channel. And Phil gave us a great interview, much like his girlfriend. You just have to ask him half a question and off he goes for 10 minutes. But we never asked him about his... I think it was like four day cash game where he really pushed his endurance. And actually that would have made a lot of sense with you having done your 24 hour runs and whatnot. Okay. You brought it up, not me. Just. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, TBC. That was me. That was me. No, I I felt like that was an obvious question that I don't know. I just somehow blanked on or we just didn't ask in in the moment. Yeah. I mean, I do remember that interview felt a bit like chasing after a runaway horse. (laughs) (laughs) Great way. In a lovely way. way, But yeah, we started to ask a question in an hour and a half later the interview was finished yeah Phil has a really fast mind obviously and just raced all over the place it didn't feel like we could necessarily corral it the way we would with some other guests but uh, you know that's the appeal of Phil Lack Absolutely. The next question is the biggest mistake we made on the show. I'm actually reminded now immediately of us interviewing Antonio Esfandiari. Uh, That wasn't too long ago, only maybe two or three months ago. And there was a horrible moment. and It was quite an early question where I alluded to his taking a wee in the bottle at the PCA 
for a prop bet or he didn't win the bottle for the prop bet he was doing a lunging bet where his, the only way he could walk was by taking great lunging steps and his obviously his quads and his thighs were in bits so he needed to go to the loo at the break couldn't get himself out of the room his legs were too sore and took a little wee in a bottle which ultimately got him disqualified and I think we put the question to him something like have you ever taken the piss when doing a uh, prop bet or something and it just went quiet for a second mm. and after a pregnant pause he turned to you and just goes I don't think that's funny yeah. <laughs> and I just went oh shit we've blown it yeah we usually ask those questions right at the end just in case if the guest does storm off that at least we have the rest <laughs> of the interview the mistake was probably putting this right at the start um, yeah I mean obviously we've had technical issues with people forgetting to press the record button or I do remember in season one I think we lost the entire Kevin Killeen interview the worst part of it was the last part was a quiz where we asked him 20 questions about poker and he was absolutely useless. I think he might have got one of the 20, but then we had to re-record and obviously he got 20 out of 20 the second time because he knew the answers. <laughs> yeah, so if people listen back to that and it is in season one, bear in mind it was a very different interview the first time and a, certainly a very different quiz portion. Next bit here is, is there anything that we cut from the show that we wish we'd left in? Well, that's a good question. I do remember <laughs> Karis got waxing lyrical about my blog and then you somehow decided to cut that from her interview. That's the only one that I think sticks it was a, it was a continuity issue, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, you did uh, redress the balance by about three seasons later, putting it in the very end of the show, which nobody listens to after the music. <laughs> after I, I felt really bad about that. I literally didn't sleep that night because I felt bad that I had taken away that lovely compliment. <laughs> that you well, in my defense, I remember, and it's so funny to think back on these things, we used to argue about the length of the show and you, oh, always used to insist you don't anymore but yeah. you used to insist that it should stay under an hour yeah. and I used to say it doesn't matter if it's 70 minutes or whatever yeah. and you had me sort of like scared to put out a show that was anything more than 59 minutes or 59 seconds so I used to be a bit more like vicious with my cuts and unfortunately when I did cut Cara's interview there was a segment that could come out but it included that lovely comment so in case anyone doesn't know <laughs> Cara Scott loves Daryl Carney's blog thinks he's a wonderful erudite beautiful wordsmith <laughs> Um, I'm trying to think of anything else that, that we cut. I don't think so. For, le- for, le- for legal reasons, we might have cut one or two things. Yeah, that's true. People that, do, that's true. do say things off the cuff with us that yeah. might be libelous or it might be, I guess, things that they might get in trouble for in their social circles. A few of them haven't, though. Geez, I remember uh, Sam Greenwood being really honest. And at the end of the interview, we do this thing where we tell the guests, look, don't worry, say what you like. But if there's anything you say that you wish you hadn't said or whatever, we'll take it out. And we would take it out because we're not trying to trap anyone. And Sam Greenwood at the end, I was expecting to go, actually, would you remove that? And would you remove that and he was like no I want everyone to know put it all in I I want the world to know I think Dietrich Fast is a cunt (laughs) more or less it was more or less that which is pretty harsh yeah in terms of cuts and I'm going to pay you a very rare compliment here David does all of the editing pretty much on his own I always leave it in his hands so that way I can bitch about what he takes out but I'm almost amazed at what comes back he does an amazing job on the edit and if people could hear the actual unedited versions I'm pretty sure we'd have almost no fans (laughs) <laughs> Final question yep. from Tony. Who have been your favourite guests? And I guess I'll expand on that and ask the question, who have been our audience's favourite guests? Well, you go first, Dara. Okay, well, my favourite guests, obviously, a lot of the people we've had on are you know, close friends. Pretty much everybody in the early seasons were somebody that we knew very well. So it goes without saying that we like all those people. So for me, the favourite guests have been guests that I didn't actually know personally and I was intrigued by, let's say. 
And I think the absolute pinnacle would have to be Jennifer Tilly. I think in terms of both the interview she gave us and what a big deal it was for the show when we got her. Because when we came back, I mean, people might not remember this now, but our first season we were Irish only and we just had Irish guests on apart from one show where we had some English people on. But we were trying to expand out, obviously. And, you know, when we came back, we had quite a few UK guests. But Jennifer was sort of the first First of all, the first major American guest that we'd had. And secondly, the first like bona fide celebrity outside of poker. So that made it much, much easier for us to get guests after that. Uh, the other person I'll give a shout out to is um, Maria Konakova, who I didn't know at all before we interviewed her. Fascinating lady. Have gotten to know her quite well since. And her journey from being sort of a total poker noob to being where she is now is pretty remarkable. Yeah, incredible stuff from Maria, how she's gone from best-selling book author who didn't even know the hand rankings to now platinum pass off to the Caribbean to try and win. What a great finish to her book it would be if she does manage a, a deep run in that one. Also, someone I loved was uh, Jennifer Shahade as well, another excellent author and someone who comes from outside of the poker world. I, I suppose that's maybe the common theme here is that, you know, sometimes the guests who've joined us who weren't poker people originally or, or have this other dimension were always good. It was great having Ken Doherty on the show, genuine sports star. But actually, I, I want to come back to what you said there. That was such a special couple of days where you and I went to London London to meet Jennifer for what was ostensibly an hour, but like an hour of her movie star life is a very valuable commodity that she was willing to give us. And I remember, I think we came out of that interview and we were kind of buzzing after. It was really exciting. We kind of, you know, been in there under the lights and cameras. You can see us on our phones asking our questions because we didn't realize it would even be <laughs> film and we didn't learn them off by heart. You can also see the looked. sweat rolling down our faces because we weren't <laughs> used to being in uh, heavily lit, unventilated rooms. I, I do remember <laughs> exactly. almost passing out during that interview. Yeah, I do too. Uh, and and yeah, let's let's blame the lights and how uh, <laughs> starstruck we were. Yeah. But, uh, but no, genuinely, I remember coming out of that and I think I said to you, I said, that nice lady has just given us our show, Dara. Because like you said, it did suddenly just put us into a new echelon. And I do think you're right. Without Jennifer, I'm not sure any of it would have been possible. No, no, I don't think so. Well, on that note, I want to turn our attention to a little poll we did. We asked people what their favorite guests were and their favorite interviews that we've done. And the names that came up were Neil Farrell, of course, who had us in stitches all three times he was on the show. I will never forget that rant about American players. Tom Hall, who similarly, I, I guess the theme there is the outspoken people who aren't afraid to tell you what they really think. Tom has come on the show, worn his heart in a sleeve, spoken emotionally about his life and his relationship with his family, being a poker player. And then, you know, what the winds have meant to him. It's, it's wonderful hearing him. We had Neil Channing on the show, not once, but twice. The always entertaining Neil, who told us stories and a few jokes. Then, of course, our three-time guests, Kat Arnsby and Kevin Mathers, two of the game's great characters, both of whom do so much for the game. Wow, there really are too many to mention them all. Another is Ben Wilanowski, who actually just won there last week, the Deep Stack Championships. Great to see him have a result. He was in sort of semi-retirement. He, of course, came on the show speaking very frankly about mental health issues, which, of course, is so important. And then, of course, John O'Croot, a really good friend of ours, Dara, who actually introduced us to one another. So in, in a sense, he's responsible for this podcast. And John was a bit of a flashback for people because he quit the game for a couple of years. He's off trying to buy himself a pub probably somewhere in Roscommon. But he was certainly one of, if not the great Irish poker player of six or seven years ago playing online. 
and he did introduce us to one another and he was a man who liked to take random strange choices in his life that often led him on weird and wonderful adventures and, and we got to have him speak about some of those to us which was great yeah yeah those guys all resonated very well with our audience absolutely well they are several of your favorites there are two others and we are fortunate enough to be able to welcome back those two others as our guests for the remainder of the show so without further ado pop up <laughs> we welcome back now the lady who propelled the show into a different league when she appeared in 2017 not only that but she has also been so generous behind the scenes helping us book several other a-list guests over the past year a WSOP bracelet winner, Hollywood icon, and as voted by our audience, and I'm sorry to tell you this, Jennifer, the second most popular former guest after Dara's fabulous wife, Mireille. Oh. She is, of course, the wonderful Jennifer Tilly. Jennifer, welcome back to the show. Oh, well, I'm really happy to hear from you guys again. I always enjoy your interviews and Twitter feed, and it's just really nice to be voted a popular guest because sometimes I feel like if you read like the comments after like appearances or tweets, you just feel like, oh my gosh, everybody is against me. But I think that, you know, in the poker community, there's like a lot of people who are sort of like watching you play poker and they're like, oh my God, I never would have made that move. Or how come Bride of Chucky is playing poker on TV and not me? So <laughs> it makes me feel good every time I get like a little bit of validation from the poker community because everybody I meet in real life in poker is really nice. It's just like sometimes there's people like on Twitter that think they're being very clever by putting down other people. Since we had you on last, we had the pleasure of interviewing your boyfriend, Phil, at the Unibet European Open in Las Vegas. You tweeted recently a couple of plays together, stays together. Do you you guys actually play poker together because we heard you don't like to actually no we do not when i was first starting out you know phil was teaching me everything that he knew which is very extensive and then there always gets to be a point in a relationship where i'm not going to say the student exceeds the teacher i'll say where the student thinks they know more than the teacher and gets very <laughs> cranked so now Phil, he's like, he walks on eggshells, like you'll watch me play. And he kind of wants to tell me not to raise with a particular hand in early position or that I shouldn't barrel every street when obviously the guy is holding on. So he'll have something that he wants to say and he tries to say it very delicately. And I'm like, you play your way, I'll play my way. We have different ways of playing. And he just like retreats like, okay. So we do get like a little contentious when he's trying to tell me. And sometimes he tries, he tries to think about how to teach me to be a better poker player without like, you know, torpedoing our relationship. So sometimes <laughs> I'll say, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, come in, in the office. And I'll go, why? He goes, oh, I'm, I'm about to watch this funny video about bed sizing he goes do you want to watch it with me i'm like not really he's like you can sit on my lap <laughs> i'm like oh okay so then i watch it and you know i sort of suspect he'd already watched it and he has this whole setup like you know like there's people i like to watch like doug poke he's like oh doug poke made another funny video let's watch it together but i'm pretty sure every time he watches something he thinks he'll help me he does this sort of little charade. And lots of times, like, I'll watch poker shows that I'm on. And myself being an entertainer, all I care about is, number one, I don't care about the hands I'm not in. <laughs> Actors always have this joke, my line, blah, 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 my line, you know. And <laughs> kind of what I'm like when I'm watching the poker show. Sometimes you don't play the hand very well, but you make a really good joke. And to me, that's almost as, <laughs> almost as good. And Phil will be talking through my jokes. He'll be like, 
well, here, you didn't really have the plot odds to call and the way that that person did the thing. So he'll be analyzing the hand like, you know, he's Mike Sexton in the booth. And I'm like, be quiet, be quiet. I'm saying something funny right here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since we last saw you, Jennifer, you've been playing a lot of TV poker. You described live poker, I remember, on our last interview as being like Reese's Pieces. Now, that mightn't translate brilliantly for all of our European audience, but I knew what you mean. It's the perfect mixture that tickles your love for the game and your love of being in front of the camera, as you described. How has it been going for you, though, lower stakes games and higher stakes games? You kind of have moved in between both of those over the last few months. Well... This is the thing, like, there's a whole Hollywood home game scene in L.A., and it's like producers, directors, Silicon Valley millionaires, money launderers, drug dealers. (laughs) It's a very, very volatile scene. And I was playing these home games, you know, it's sort of like Molly's game, except for Molly's not around anymore. So when I would go on Poker Night in America, and I'd have a big loss for Poker Night in America... I was like, hey, that's a big blind in my regular game that I play. (laughs) So I really did have a lot of fun on Poker Night in America because the stakes were, you know, it was sort of like you're playing Monopoly with your eight-year-old. You kind of don't care if you win (laughs) or you lose. I mean, the stakes just aren't high enough. I feel like poker isn't really poker unless you have like a near-death experience. So when you go out to play poker... If you come home and you haven't like lost your house, it's like, wow, that was a good night. Like one of the things I do, and I don't know if it's psychological, I get stuck immediately, like hugely, hugely stuck. Because right up until then, I'm like, oh my God, what if I lose my buy-in? How will I tell my business manager? Oh, this is horrible. And then all of a sudden, through no fault of my own, I'll be playing really tight. Maybe get it in with pocket aces versus pocket kings. Probably with the gang I play with, I get it in with pocket aces versus three five of clubs. The three five (laughs) of clubs wins. I've lost my buy-in. The worst thing has happened. $20,000 that I could have been buying shoes with or something. And then all of a sudden, I just turn into this raging maniac. And I'll be like, give me $100,000. So I think that is like really a degen way. And then I went through a period, you know, where my ex-husband was sick. And I think sometimes people use poker as an escape. You really have to have balance in poker. And so I sort of really pulled back from playing in the home games. Plus, I started to hear from some people that sometimes there's a reason why you get it in with pocket aces and the three five of clubs wins, which is, you know, it's not a casino. Sometimes there's like some shady business going on at some of these games. Uh, So I stopped playing the home games, but I do a little bit. There's like one game that I play like once in a while. And so the last like eight times I played, I won a lot of money. So I started thinking of that as like, hey, Hey, I'm a professional poker player. And I would like kind of casually go to my uh, business manager. Oh, hey, I have a really big check coming in. I mean, you can put it towards the mortgage or whatever, you know. And she's like, oh, wow. But I could tell like she's not happy that I have a big check coming in because that means I'm playing poker again. (laughs) But then I'm having a bunch of winning sessions in a row. I thought, I'm a superhero. You know, like in Star Wars where he says, use the force, Luke. I always think of that because sometimes if I'm really in the zone, I'm like the best poker player in the world. If I'm not in the zone, I'm like the worst poker player in the world. And I'm sure you've all experienced this, is that you're trying to push something that's not working. You know, when you're not in the zone, the best thing to do is get up from the table or just really tighten up. So anyway, I started out playing the Poker Night in America, which is sort of low stakes. 
And then I got invited to like the Antonio games on Poker After Dark. And I knew because I know Antonio and I've played, you know, with him before. When I look at the group of people that he has playing in his game, I know who's going to jack up the stakes and who's not going to jack up the stakes. So the first time I played with Antonio, where I think I lost that one pot that was $150,000, it was a $10,000 buy-in. <laughs> but I knew it wasn't a $10,000 buy-in. I go, I'm going to play with Antonio to my business manager. It's a $10,000 buy-in. Can you wire 300000 to the Aria? <laughs> I always said that poker is just one big game of dick measuring. When it comes to dick measuring, <laughs> he has a bigger dick than me. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking, I mean, there's no surprises down there. But... It is sort of like a big game of chicken, especially if nobody sure. has anything. It's like, you back down. No, you back down. <laughs> well, Jennifer, you mentioned they're potentially losing a, a very nice pair of shoes in the early going of a tournament. Last summer, we were actually in Como at the same time. I wasn't stalking you, I promise. I was at a wedding. And as I recall, you were there for Dolce & Gabbana's Altamodo show. Apart from poker and acting, fashion is clearly a big part of your life. How do you cope in the poker world then, surrounded by all those tracksuits, hoodies, and even your boyfriend in pajamas. You know what? This is what I love about the poker world is that everybody can just do whatever they want. I know on TV, I think it's just a little more watered down because I think at Poker Central, they have a rule that people can't wear hoodies or sunglasses or whatever. You know, there's a movement like try to get people to wear suits at the table. But I think this is why people are attracted to poker players because they really do sort of live outside society's norm. I mean, they just kind of do whatever they want. I remember the first time I went to Monte Carlo, I was like, oh, Monte Carlo, James Bond. I thought, oh, the casinos, they have all the guilt and everyone will be wearing tuxedos. And I think they do have a dress code in the casinos, but it was the Monte Carlo millions and just hordes and hordes, like hundreds and hundreds of poker players and sweatpants showed up. It's like they couldn't do. There was too many of them. They couldn't like stop everyone at the door and say, no, you have to wear real shiny shoes or ditch the backpack. It's just like people like to be comfortable when they're playing poker. Like in the acting world, everybody is actors are so worried about how they come across and how people perceive them and saying the right things. They hire stylists so they don't get made fun of on the red carpet. Like nobody going down the red carpet is wearing an outfit they picked out themselves for the most part. And then even if they hated somebody, hated them when they're filming a movie, in the interview, they're like, oh, they were so wonderful. They always say how great it was to kiss their co-stars. They smile to your face and stab you in the back. Poker players are very rude. I would call it needling, but they stab you in your front. Front stabbers, yeah. They <laughs> say think of something rude to say. Just say it. And then everybody laughs. You just have to have a really tough skin. But, you know, I kind of grew up with that because I grew up kind of hanging out with the boys. I personally think it's really funny. If someone has something rude to say and it's funny, I'm like, bring it on, you know? <laughs> But um, I really love fashion. When I started playing poker, I knew that everybody saw me as campy. You know, like most of my friends are gay men. And so at first, I really wanted to be taken seriously. And I was wearing like jeans. And even when I was going to like a charity tournament, I wear like jeans and t-shirts to show that I was a serious poker player. And then I thought about it. I even made myself laugh. It's like, you're not a serious poker player. And I knew that everybody was sort of like, oh, the movie starlet playing poker. So I just thought, I'm just going to dress like I would dress on a talk show and, you know, wear my cute outfits and, you know, sort of be an interesting visual because, you know, I don't like to attract attention in my normal life, but I definitely like to attract attention when I'm on camera. If I'm being paid to be an event, then I bring like full on Jennifer Tilly drag because they're not 
coming to see Jennifer Tilly, ratty t-shirt, no makeup, just rolled out of bed and a baseball cap on. So that's, that's why I do it. I don't care that I'm the only person at the table dressed like, you know, I'm going to the Met Ball. It's like fun for me. And I, I find it amusing. I amuse myself. <laughs> We also had Antonio on the show, another interview you helped facilitate for us. He was pretty adamant that he hates the way a lot of modern high stakes players behave at the table. He depicted them as sort of robots who stare down their opponents and essentially are no fun to be around. Yeah. Do you agree or are you more forgiving? This is why I love to play with Antonio, even though he really does almost get the better of me. And he targets me. He goes after me harder than he goes after anybody else because he thinks it's funny. But... When I play with him, it's always a good time. He always gets together a group of really fun people. There's great conversations. There's great jokes. He's got a great sense of humor. Like Antonio and Phil, I've always said they have the best chemistry of anybody. They're like the butch and Sundance of the poker world. Because their banter, Antonio plays off of Phil perfectly. And he's like a great sort of straight man to Phil. But they're both totally aware of this comedic rhythm that they're doing. So I always love to play with Antonio. But if I play with him, I have to like be, be aware that he's going to really sort of jack up the stakes to where it's kind of beyond my comfort zone. The last game I was playing with him, I was looking around the table and everybody at the table had probably 10 times or 100 times more than myself. Not on the table, like in real life. Like I'm playing with these people that tell the president what to do and, you know, things like that. So I said to Brent Hanks, who does the casting and puts the games together, I said, you know what, I don't mind playing with the best players in the world. In fact, I rather enjoy it because it's a challenge to me. Like the very first poker after dark I did, I said, oh, my God, everybody's going to want to watch this. And they said it was a $250,000 buy, which I'd never bought in that high before. Like up until then, the most I bought in for was 50000 But I was like, I want to be on this because this is a new thing. It was just when they were starting the Poker Central. I said, everybody's going to want to watch it. And Maury said to me, oh, it's going to be like businessmen. And I go, oh, okay. So he kind of gave me the lineup. And one of them was Rick Solomon, who I played with Rick Solomon in the home games. Rick Solomon is like a brilliant poker player. He's really, really good. I know he's kind of known for his um, uh, filmmaking abilities. He's one of those other people that I have a problem with because he's fearless, like Antonio. So I show up. And I see Rick running very fast in the other direction. And I go, oh, aren't we about to start the show? And he goes, oh, yeah, I just forgot something in my room. So he says, I'll show you where it is, though. And he's kind of pointing me down the way, the hall to where the studio was. And I showed up and there were no businessmen at all. It was Johnny Chan, Phil Ivey, Doyle Brunson, Antonio Esfandari, and JRB and myself. So it was like, a table full of sharks and Rick's like, I can't beat this game or he didn't want to. And he just decided to opt out. And so I've been, I think Massey, Aussie Matt joined us later on. Who's also like a, a crazy pants. So I sat down anyway, cause I guess I could have said, I forgot something in my room too, but I was like, Oh my God, what a, a privilege. I mean, what a legendary lineup to play with Phil Ivy and Johnny Chan and Doyle Brunson. I mean, I just felt like to be playing with the best of the best would obviously be a challenge for me. But I've said to Brent, I don't care if the guys are the best poker players in the world. If they are entertaining to play with, I want to play with them. You know, if they have good table presence, like I played with Jason Mercier in Poker After Dark and he tweeted a picture of like some electric car. 
that he had just bought. And he goes, thanks, Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the poker players that are really, really good, they don't get emotional. And they're like, well, why should I make chit chat? I'm just giving away tells. Like the people who count to 30 before they move on their hand, even if it's like the worst hand ever, just so they'll be consistent. I think that that is not as enjoyable to me. But mostly everybody I've played with, I really enjoyed. Like I've played with some great poker players. Well, before we let you go, the week after your appearance on the show last time out, we had the pleasure of Barney Boatman's company and he plugged the book. He played for his wife and other stories, a collection of short stories, one of which was, of course, penned by yourself. Can you tell us about that collection and specifically your contribution once more into the abyss? Okay, well, number one, Barney Boatman's story is brilliant. I was reading it. My heart was pounding. I felt like I felt like I was the degenerate on the way down because I could associate with that. I was in London for the World Series of Poker about, I think it was about 10 years ago, and there was this bookstore, and um, it had this huge poker book collection, and it was Natalie Galliston's bookstore, and she had amassed this huge collection of poker books. And I went in there and it was the most amazing collection. And she also had photographs by Aldous Albert of all the poker greats. And I wanted to buy a book and she said, no, I want to sell the collection all together. And I thought about it and I was like, I just thought I had to have it. So I have this beautiful, amazing poker book collection that I bought from Natalie. And I used to write for Bluff Magazine. Phil and I and Antonio all wrote for Bluff Magazine for 10 years. I was a regular reader of those ones. They were great. Oh, thank you. I basically wrote about my experience. And it's really funny because when it starts out, it's like, oh, it's so fun. Hey, I saw Johnny Chan. Wee. Oh, I did this. I did that. And then it gets like darker. <laughs> I think I wrote an article about how I was down a million two hundred and fifty thousand dollars one day. And then I managed to get it back down to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. And I thought it was a win. I talk about the sun coming up and everyone looking really disgusting and boshy. <laughs> and just like hating myself I'm looking around the table at one point saying I hate all of you and everyone laughed and I'm like no I mean it <laughs> my family all started getting really worried for me they're like you used, you used to write about how you were traveling to Cannes and Caicos and now it's like these stories are really disturbing so anyway Natalie really liked my articles and she came up with this idea because she knew a lot of poker players and Natalie's a poker player herself and she wanted to have a poker stories collection so she asked if I'd write a story and the book kind of fell apart and then it came together so I thought like I can't write anything that's not true and then she's like oh we have are you gonna do a story we have a week and then she's like the story's due tomorrow and I hadn't written it instead I went out procrastinating and I played in a home game and I lost a lot of money and I came home and I was like but I'll write the story. Cause now I had an idea in my head. So I started writing about this home game, everything that happened. And then of course I had to fictionalize it. So I went back and changed everybody's name. And then I had the poker game being robbed and this thing. And, you know, it sort of spiraled into a different area, which ended up making it fiction. So I was very proud of myself when I saw this book, it's published by Simon and Schuster because I'm in a book with all the great poker writers. So my story is basically like a girl sort of like myself that, you know, is playing these home games and is sort of in over her head. There's a thing in the story that is true. That's like my dad had a quote unquote poker problem, which I didn't even find out because I didn't grow up with him until after he passed away. And my stepmom sent me a book and she said, Jennifer, 
you like poker. This was your dad's book. Do you want it? I was like, huh? And it was Sklansky's Theory of Poker that he had bought in 1969. And it was uh, $60 back then for a paperback book, which is like, I guess, because you're giving up all the secrets. So I guess he got it at the back of Esquire magazine or something. It was all highlighted and dog-eared. I had no idea that my dad was a poker player. No idea at all. So I think it's sort of like, uh, I think I have genetic markings for being a poker player. Also, like I'm half Chinese and gambling goes so far back in the Chinese culture. In fact, the first documented deck of cards was in the 12th century in China. And then I found out from my Aunt Marie, because I'm getting to know more about the Chinese side of my family because I grew up with my mom and I didn't really know that side of the family. My grand, my Aunt Marie said that my grandfather's family was extremely wealthy. Like when they came to America, they came first class, not steerage. And my granddad was studying at USC Medical School when all of a sudden halfway through his studies, he had to cut them short and go back to China. Why? His brother had gambled away the family fortune, <laughs> which I think was probably very hard to do because they were so wealthy. I'm just imagining Antonio Esfandiari's grandfather being the one who took all that money. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how it happened, but home games, you can get in trouble because you get unlimited credit. It's also things like, let's say I'm in a home game and I lose like, $50,000 to good old Eugene, you know, Eugene that works over at Paramount Studios and, you know, has a wife and kids. And then the guy that calls up, he's like, hey, so can you wire $50,000 to so-and-so in Canada? And it's like, ah, <laughs> uh, you know, so-and-so in Canada, he's got kind of a reputation. Like he's probably, I think, in the witness protection program. And you're like, I don't really want a wire of mine going to somebody that I didn't even play poker with that I kind of know is in the drug business. So you have to like be really yeah. strong. Like, um, Shame no, on you, Eugene from Paramount. <laughs> I'd rather just get it. And of course, of course, you're crossing borders. It's like, I'd rather give it to good old Eugene, you know? <laughs> so it is like a really kind of shady business. Although perfectly legal. I'm just going to say this, you know, for public record. It's illegal to take <laughs> It's illegal to take rake in a home game, but you're allowed to tip. In fact, you're strongly encouraged to tip. In fact, you have to tip. <laughs> so that's how they kind of get around it. So, you know, sort of a, a murky gray area. But I, like I said, I don't play those home games anymore. Just like once in a while. <laughs> well, I can promise you that the story, Once More Into the Abyss, is just as good as all the storytelling we've been treated to today. The perfect Christmas stocking stuffer for the poker player in your life, the book, <laughs> Played for His Wife, and other stories is available on Amazon for about 20 quid, I think. I wholeheartedly recommend that you pick it up. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming back and making our 50th episode so special. Oh my gosh, and congratulations on your 50th episode, and may there be many more. It's lovely to talk to you both, and happy holidays. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks so much. It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello and welcome to our 50th ever episode of the show and welcome to the news. For 43rd for you, Ian. You haven't been here for 50 episodes. Oh, sorry. I thought we were a team. <laughs> I just thought we were a team. I was just celebrating the show's success. All yeah. right, fine. Fuck you. I'll celebrate in a week. <laughs> you can celebrate seven episodes from now. I will. I will. <laughs> Actually, I think you did miss a couple of episodes too. You're probably only around the 40 mark. Go on anyway. You're right, dick. <laughs> 
Uh, moving on, we do start with some sad news today, unfortunately. Uh, Norwegian poker legend Tua Hansen has passed away at the age of 71 last week after a long battle with cancer. Tributes are poured in across the poker world for a man who epitomised everything good about our game. You're here to that. Very sad to lose Tour. Uh, had the privilege of playing with him several times in City West at the Norwegian Championships. He was certainly one of the game's great guys. Just a, a lovely person to spend time with, have an afternoon with, chatting away at the tables. He will be massively missed across the poker world, I know that. Yeah, absolutely. And from what I hear, he was, he was pretty indomitable. He was, despite being very poorly, it, he didn't, it didn't slow him down whatsoever from what I've heard. Uh, moving on to live poker then. The Unibet Open in Dublin and the Unibet UK Tour in Manchester have both been and gone. Starting with the UK Tour in Manchester, huge congratulations to Justin Davenport. He won the UK Tour in Manchester for £12,300. Special shout out to community favourite Maestro1908. He managed to come second in the UK Tour in Manchester. Along with winning a few bucks for himself, he also secured a €2,000 Unibet Open package for being the longest lasting online qualifier. Also, special shout out to our friend Josh Parker, who came sixth for £3,000. Yeah, delighted to see that result for Anko and, of course, for Josh. Justin took down the majority of the spoils. He dominated that final table from beginning to end, but it was great to see those two community boys doing so well. Congratulations to them both. Absolutely. Moving on to the Unibet Open in Dublin. Paul Ju Holderness won the event for €74,900. Congratulations to him. And big shout-outs to Mick McCluskey and Keith Brennan, who managed to come fifth and third place, respectively, on that final table. Yeah, phenomenal festival, actually, from beginning to end. Nick O'Hara and Natalie Sopaku-Peru did an unbelievable job bringing it all together. The party in Crystal was amazing. The drinks at the bar in McGettigan's were phenomenal. There was just all the crack, as you can imagine, would always be there at an Irish poker festival. But something very special, I think, that Unibet bring is that community feel and that sense of a sort of a travelling body of players who go from city to city. It really was a special event. It was fantastic. Um, On a live poker, live poker is definitely alive and well at the minute. With plenty of 1,000 plus runner fields happening across the globe. The biggest one would be the WPT 5 Diamond, $10,000 buy-in, and it was won by Dylan Lindy. I'd like to read out a little tweet that I saw about this, actually. Uh, Adam Owen tweeted, Congratulations, Dylan Lindy. Probably still due despite just shipping the WPT 5 Diamond. But he said, Excellent player, better bloke. And the reason I particularly like that tweet is because Jason Glatzer said pretty much the exact same sentence to me whilst the final table was in play. So it's always nice to see one of the good guys get one of the big scores, and big score it was. 1.6 million this gentleman just won. Yeah, sick one, and I saw that the very next day he was out walking his dog, so he hasn't changed a bit. He had his dog on the winner's photo, it was gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who has that dog on the winner's photo has got to be a perfect human. Oh no, you put your foot in it because Chris Ferguson did the very same thing. <laughs> Oh, I can see the headline now. Ian Simpson calls Chris Ferguson a perfect person. <laughs> can we cut recording and start again? <laughs> absolutely not. That's stated. <laughs> oh, I'm absolutely good at that. How can someone who loves dogs be a bad person? I'm just imagining your next winner's photo, if that ever happens, when uh, you, you bring your cats and they just fuck off and walk away. <laughs> they just walk out of shot. Yeah, probably that's what they would do, yeah. <laughs> moving on, moving on. <laughs> Alex Linsky won the WSOP circuit event in Sydney for 450,000 Aussie dollars. Boris Mondras won the EPT National in Prague for 380,000 euros. Who are all these people winning 
six-figure and seven-figure scores. They're making me jealous. I was happy to come second in the Nano last night and get 50 quid of my Sunday back. Jesus Christ. Well, well done to you for that. Thanks, thanks. Enough about my woes, though. At the time of recording, the EPT main is down to its final 16. Former guest Parker Tonka Talbot is still very much in the mix for the million euro first prize. We wish him all the best. Yeah, absolutely, Tonka, one of my favourite people in poker. I hope he has a deep run. I hope he makes a final table. I know he was paranoid there last night about having another 11th place finish when there's a milli up top. I hope that isn't what happens. He's had a few of those. Fingers crossed. To the online felt, the online millions has been and gone. Party Poker held a 20 million guaranteed online event. 20 million! I didn't think they'd hit this one, I have to say. No, I didn't think they'd hit it either, but they got over 21 million in the prize pool. In the end, Manuel Cheparento Rivu of Portugal and Pim Pormada Rasha of the Netherlands chopped it up. $2.3 million each, while Scarmaker of Slovenia took third for $1.3 million. He spun that up from a $5 super satellite. So I think the biggest congratulations go to that gentleman. For sure, that was an incredible spin-up, and he's doing the rounds at the moment, I know, on the chat show circuit now. He's certainly becoming a mini-celebrity all right off the back of this. Oh, good for him. That's fantastic. Anyway, we have to wrap up now, Eni, and before we go, you did allude a moment ago to the Unibet Online series, which has been going for the last few weeks. It's actually not finished yet. At the time of recording, we are going into day twos of all the main events, so that is to be looked forward to. I know you have a main event run in progress in both the low and the high, so good luck to you on that one. I'm in the low myself, and I think David von der Hayden is one of the chip leaders in the high, so we have a few sweats to go. But I wanted to ask you about the leaderboard. You're a passionate leaderboard chaser. You always do your 14-day Twitch streams very good entertaining product i must admit but uh but have they yielded the desired results oh i'm currently sat in 13th position on the leaderboard Uh. one spot behind dara and 1200 points behind the first position who has the initials js that's all we know my guess is that is john spinks but it could be jamie staples it could be jack Jack sinclair jack salter Oh my god, all the JSs. My uncle John Simpson could be him. him. (laughs) Well, having won the first ever online series leaderboard, both uh, overall and high, I can tell you that it it is really reserved for pretty pretty classy players, Ian, and I'm not sure you'll ever make the grade. How did you describe your man cave just a moment ago when we went recording? That That's neither here nor there. I have a bit of a flu at the moment. (laughs) There there may be tissues lying around the place that may look like a 15-year-old boy's bedroom. Um... What I want to ask you, though, Ian, is will you be railing me for the Battle of Champions in Sinaya in February? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm always on your rail. We may have this sort of frenemy thing going on, but I'm always on the rail. It's on you, right? Ian Simpson, thank you so much. On behalf of Darren and I, we have absolutely thoroughly enjoyed all your news pieces. And yes, okay, it might only be your 40th episode or so, but uh, at our 50th episode, it is a lovely opportunity to thank all the people. And you are one of the top people who have helped Uh-oh. make this show what it is. So appreciate that. Thank you so much, dude. Thank you so much. Great stuff. Well, we will see you in the new year. Happy days. Take care. Bop, bop. For our strategy segment this week, we welcome back Diva Byrne. Diva, welcome to our 50th episode. Yay, exciting. Thanks for having me, guys. And congrats on uh, such a long run and a great success for the chip race so far. Thank you very much. Well, before we kick off with the hand, I do want to ask you about the recent Unibet Open Dublin. The hand involves the final table of that anyway. Uh, Addy, you hosted the first ever Queen's Rules Tournament and one of the biggest ladies events held on Irish soil, I know bigger than the Irish Open this year. Can you tell us how the event went? 
Oh, it was a huge success. I was very happy and pleased myself to see such a good turnout. We got 46 entries and it was lots of fun. Lots of local ladies came out and it's great to see lots of Unibet Open regulars growing the numbers. More and more ladies coming to play the main event and some side events. And yeah, we got lots of familiar faces on the final table. Unibet Open community reg and just a lovely lady in general, Emily Svenningson, she won it. I think it was her first live win and she was very, very happy. So I was pleased for her. And then had Delia, who's also regular, she came third. And Luis, another community regular and ladies group member, she came fourth. So yeah, it was great turnout. And well done, all the ladies, and thank you for supporting the ladies event. Yes, well, congratulations to all of those people. And congratulations to you too, Diva, because I know particularly that ladies' Facebook group has become quite the monster. I know there might be more than 2,000 people in there these days. You do an awful lot of great work for women in poker. Oh, thank you so much. We are up to 2,500 members right now. And um, it's been uh, not even two years yet. So I'm very pleased with the numbers and such a big growth. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can do the same next year, grow a bit more and build this lovely community. Here, here to that. Well, Dara, I'm going to turn to you first for this poker hand. It comes from six left at the Unibet Open main event in Dublin. Of course, our good friend Mick McCluskey was there. He ended up finishing fifth. He's one of the shorter stacks in this hand, but it involves the two biggest stacks, which is a really interesting spot always from an ICM perspective. First of all, Dara, you did a lot of commentary on these players over the course of the two days leading up to this. Any particular dynamical things you would have noticed? Uh, yeah, well, Michael, who was the chip leader when this hand happens, was by far the most aggressive player. I'd done quite a lot of commentary the previous day, and he was doing stuff like four betting king seven. So he was playing super aggro. I also did some commentary at the very start of the final table, and he came in in the same vein, but every time he opened, he got three bet. Every time he three bet, he got four bet. But actually, he was just running into hands a lot. But in his mind, he might have been worried that people were picking on him because of the way he played the previous day on the stream. The other villain in this hand is the eventual winner, Paul. Paul was playing pretty straightforward, to be honest. He was betting all his big hands and he wasn't doing anything too out of line. He'd gotten very short stacked several times and come back just by being patient and waiting for a hand. So at the start of this hand, Michael is the chip leader with 42 big blinds. Paul has 31. Julian, the French guy who was under the gun in this hand and folded, has 27 bigs. And then we have three short stacks, 13, 12 and 11. So that really exaggerates the ICM of this situation. Yeah, it really does. On the face of it, it sounds like a classic race and a classic cooler, but really such are the extreme ICM situations that a, a scenario like this creates that actually what they did was certainly not for the best outcome for their pockets, if you like. I'll go straight to the hand. The chip leader raises the button to 160k, big blind 80k, pretty standard and pretty standard sizing given the shallowness of the stacks behind. He's got ace-king off suit. This is Michael Brock. Small blind, who is second in chips, the chap you mentioned, Dara, with 31 bigs, has queen-queen. Now, already this is, you know, what a lot of people would assume is going to be a let's get it in hand, ace-king against queens, only playing 30 big blinds effectively. But in reality, ICM considerations makes this anything but. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Like if this was early on in the tournament and they had the same stacks, then it would just be a standard get in and whoever wins, wins. And we wouldn't be talking about the hand. What, what makes this different is obviously the ICM is so big with the three big stacks at the table and the three shorter stacks. The big stacks have to play really cautiously against each other. Typically, the way that translates into strategy is you see a lot less raising and getting in and a lot more flatting. I mean, Michael's a chip here in this hand, but if he loses a flip here, he's actually going to be the short stack. So 
that's a huge swing in his equity. And that's why he, even he has to play cautiously. Exactly. So when faced with the decision there with Queen, Queen Diva, you know, are, are your inclinations towards flatting, as Dara said, and taking a really kind of passive navigational line? Or are you maybe thinking the other extreme and thinking, well, if I just lamp it all in here for 30 bigs, he can only call with, you know, the very top of his range. He's not going to have the very top of his range very often given the open. If that happens, it's catastrophic. Yeah, I think I would have totally gone for it and shipped it before I met Dara. But then once I met Dara, that was like, well, four or five years ago. <laughs> well, that, that's not the right strategy considering ICM and pay jumps. I think the first thing I would do when I look down at Queens, I would look around the table and see who's got less chips and by how much. And knowing that I'm sitting second in chips at the moment, I would definitely play the hand cautiously. Yeah, there's a lot of flops where you can navigate, maybe only play two streets, only ever really put half your stack at risk, which is still not great to lose half your stack if it does happen to be the case, but it's a lot better than losing all of it when you've got all these short stacks around the place, especially the likes of Mick McCluskey, who's going to be very cute with that short stack and not give it up too easily and look to ladder himself. Dara, yeah. when you look at a spot like this, because we can, we can flip it now and put the, the shoe on the other foot, in reality... Paul Jux does three bet. He actually chooses quite a small size to 460k. So effectively less than triples the open with his queens. The big blind gets out of the way and now Michael is faced with a really tricky decision. He has the option to either go all in and hope that there's enough raised folds from Paul in his range that he can just clean out the equity here and maybe be competitive against some of the calls as well. His other option is to flat himself and, and again looking at how people can navigate these spots when the ICM is huge. Does that make more sense? Yeah, the problem with the shove here is that if we shove and get called, we're never going to be better than flipping. I don't think any hand we dominate is going to call off. I think you're not getting called by Jack Seva, and I think you're only getting called by Ace King and Kings and Aces. Yeah, so Michael sent me a message on Twitter when we were talking about it, and I said that my instinct even before I ran the hand was that I wouldn't shove, but he made the counterpoint that the problem with flatting is that then when we hit our pair on the flop, an ace or a king, and we are up against a pair, we're not going to win very much. So essentially, when we win the race, we win less. But my counter-argument to that was, yeah, that's the price we pay, but winning less when we win is far less of an issue than losing the lot when we lose the race. The problem with getting it in is that we're probably going to be an underdog. I mean, people talk about it being a flip, but actually ace-king against queens is almost as bad as 10-9 suited against ace-king. You know, we have less than 45% equity. And we are in a situation where more than half the time now we're going to go from being the chip leader, kind of running over the table, to being the short stack. And very good chance that we go out sixth place, which is actually what happened. So... It's far more important for us to avoid getting stacked in a situation where we are flipping and we're destined to lose the flip than the value that we lose, either having to fold some equity on the flop or not getting the full double up when we actually win the flip. Yeah, it's very important to remember in these high ICM situations that the equity being given away isn't actually divided up between the two guys in the hand. In fact, the really big winners in this hand are all those short stacks who are observers to this hand, just getting money handed to them effectively as the two big stacks go at it. Either one, the guy in second place is going to be eliminated, or two, the guy in first place is going to become the shortest stack and now more likely to go out. And that's an amazingly advantageous spot for all the guys just sitting there on their hands, enjoying watching the hand and getting richer doing so. And that's essentially what happened, for example, like Mick Makulski, he was sitting there on 11 big blinds and he ended up laddering by 4,000 just because of this hand. 
so when the two guys get in, obviously the three shortest stacks, it must have been the dream for them, particularly when they saw that it was a flip. So there was going to be a clear winner. So that's why the big stacks in this kit, both of them really should be playing very cautiously and avoid getting in flipping because the winner of the flip wins far less than the loser of the flip loses. And the rest of the money, as David said, does go to everybody else at the table. Indeed. Well, Paul Yux was the ultimate winner of that flip the Queens did hold against Ace King off suit. Michael, unfortunately, going from huge chip leader to out in six, a devastating result for him. In the end, congratulations, of course, to Paul, who went on to win. He propelled himself from that huge hand. Obviously, a spot maybe he shouldn't have got himself into, strictly speaking, but one that I feel is really important because it's the kind of mistake that I think a lot of players will make. And I, I suppose that's something that we always try to look at on this show in the strategy segment is that it's very easy to look at very close situations. And we do that sometimes too, where it's a knife edge decision between one thing and another. What's much more useful is when you spot really big mistakes that actually a lot of people make. And, and I guess, Dara, you could probably testify to this in your coaching that honing people on these really narrow spots is all well and good and sometimes it's good food for thought but really you know fixing big leaks is is a much more beneficial thing for a player yeah for sure like a mistake like this at the end of a tournament is far more important than even punting your entire stack away at the start of a tournament because it's going to be more than one buy-in and these are the mistakes that people make most of us when we learn poker we sort of simplify the strategy in our head we come up with heuristics rather than necessarily working from fundamentals in every spot so we tend to come up with rules like it's okay to get 30 big blinds in with ace king in any spot it's okay to get queens in with 30 big blinds and that would be true when i say missing the factor like early in a tournament but the later we get in a tournament the more there's a discrepancy between something being profitable in pure chip ev and something being profitable in pure money terms and this is a case where the discrepancy is the biggest and actually getting it in is a disaster monetarily yeah, I agree. I think this really amazing hand highlighting the significance and importance of ICM. And I guess the biggest piece of advice we could give to the listeners is like when you're on a final table of any event and you have a standard decision, you just need to step back and think that is this the right move considering ICM and then make your decision. That's really good advice. Well, Diva, you mentioned there the fantastic influence that Dara has had on your career and on the way you think about poker. You, of course, have passed that knowledge on to our listeners in so many strategy segments over the course of the last, what, 43 episodes since you first appeared. And we really appreciate that. Oh, thank you so much. And I guess I just want to say thank you to you guys for having me. And obviously the biggest thank you to Dara for being the most important person in my poker development. And he actually gave me confidence and just improved my game so much. And I feel so much more fearless and technically advanced. And he is really my number one idol. And I hope I can show him some results next year. <laughs> Thanks, David. Hope so too. Well, I would usually be begrudging of any compliments given to Dara and definitely put them out. Here, here, Dara. Cool. Thank you, David. Well, by popular demand, we are joined now by the most sought-after return guest as voted by our audience. It is, of course, Mireille O'Carney, a.k.a. Mrs. Doak, the lady who utterly charmed us back in Season 5. Mireille, welcome back to the show. Hi, everybody. Mireille, it is so nice to have you back, and I'm sure Dara is delighted as well. I'm absolutely thrilled, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> That's because he hasn't seen the questions yet. <laughs> so question one, Mireille, how do you deal with Dara on a downswing or do you even know when he's on a downswing? 
Haha, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's a good one. Basically, I wouldn't know that he's on a downswing because he doesn't talk about it. The only thing is that I know he is because otherwise he would tell me, oh, today I did this or that, or I won this or I cashed in that. These moments, he doesn't say it at all. So I know he's on the, in a downswing. So it's the lack of bragging. It's absence of bragging, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not bragging. It's just telling me, you know, because he's happy to tell me that he's doing well. But when he's not doing well, he doesn't say anything to me. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it goes. So did you ever expect my poker career to last this long? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, I mean, I'm wrong. Basically, when you started playing poker, I thought that's something that will last a few months or perhaps bit longer but not more than that you know and uh, at the start I was afraid because I was thinking Jesus you know I didn't know what poker was exactly I knew that it was something that you could lose money in because for me it was gambling basically but when I saw that after I think it's three months or even less you got a big win already yeah and I thought okay that means he's good at it and, you know, I can sleep on my... There's no problem. I don't need to freak out or anything. I, I just let him do whatever he thinks is, is the best for him. Yeah, the question was, did you think it was going to last that long? After that, I didn't ask myself any questions anymore for a while until I realized, because you were telling me that basically poker was getting more and more difficult. At that point, I thought, mm, what can happen, you know? But uh, I, I was always hoping that you would know when to stop if it was the time to stop. And how much longer do you think it will last? Now? Yeah, from now. I really have no clue. You <laughs> tell me, how would I be able to know? I hope it will last for a few more years to be, be nice. It doesn't that's it, we'll find something. Yeah, I think probably both the first few questions indicate I tend to talk about the positive things and not so much about the negatives. So... If my career did end, I'd probably tell Murray the day I actually decided to stop playing. There wouldn't necessarily be too much warning in advance. So there's no danger, Dara, that you would be the poker equivalent of the guy who gets fired but just goes to work every day with his briefcase and sits in the park <laughs> and eats a sandwich. No, there isn't actually. And that's actually a true story. A very nice guy I used to play poker with, and I'm not going to name him, obviously, but uh, he was riding the Celtic Tiger, let's say. And I heard afterwards that his wife only found out he'd been fired 18 months after he'd been fired because he used to leave the house and drive around the corner and sit all day in the car, which is one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. So it's like, it's not just poker that can go wrong, obviously. There's not as much job security as there used to be. I just had this image of you now just going into your little poker man cave and saying, no, Murray, I'm just going off to play for the day. And then you're just surfing websites, surfing David Bowie websites or whatever it would be. That will work because I'm the one who brings him places. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to keep a few games up and running, maybe a few $1 games just to keep the noises going. Yeah, that's it. Or perhaps he, what he's going to do is record the noise. <laughs> anyway, there's no reason for doing that because, you know, I mean, we are open to each other. So when there's a problem, we will tell each other that there's a problem. So. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think both of us are the kind of people that we do what we're doing when we're doing it, but when it's over, we know it's over and we just move on to the next thing. So I don't think either of us would have any problem accepting if it turned out that poker wasn't beatable anymore. Well, speaking of the next thing, obviously poker became the next thing for you, Dara, but before poker, there were many other obsessions, running being the one maybe you're most well known for, but probably the other thing that you're most well known for is your friendship with David Bowie, something that maybe became more apparent to the poker public or the public at large after David passed away a few years ago. Marie, how surprised were you to find out that Dara was friends with David Bowie? It was an unusual relationship and how it started. 
Before that, I became friend with David Bowie. He was a Bowie fan and he was on the Bowie groups and all that stuff. And then also he helped writing different books about Bowie. And that's how David Bowie found out about Dara himself, you know, and started communicating with him. That's the way it started, basically. He read things that Dara wrote in different books and he was very happy with it. And that's how I think it started, no? Dara. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the thing is, we didn't exactly know for a long time. We kind of suspected that it might be an imposter. Oh, yeah. Basically, it was one of the last concerts. Yeah, that's right. Remember, he put us on the and guest list. You had got tickets yourself. Yeah, that's right. Some way. And then you said that David Bowie sent you tickets, but you were not sure. So we went to the front of the point and you said that, you know, there were tickets for you from Bowie and they let us go in. So straight away, I went to the front like I always do to make sure that we would be in the front. And then after a while, you came back and said, no, no, a guy was with you. He took us from there and I was freaking out. I was saying, no, leave me at my place. And then they dragged us upstairs to the balconies where just uh, special people were allowed to be, if you remember. Yeah, I do remember being up in the balcony. I don't remember being dragged. That might be... <laughs> No, you were not dragged. I was dragged because I wanted to stay where I was first. In fact, when we went to the balconies, the problem is that there was a huge curtain in front and for half of the time, we barely saw boy. Yeah, yeah, you were literally the only person in the, in, in the VIP part complaining, saying, no, I want to be there in the front was, in the mosh pit. I was complaining. I was saying, why are we here? We would be downstairs. We would see him. Probably. No, we can't even see him. Anyway, moving on from David Bowie and curtains, which of our kids do you think would make the best poker player? If Oshin was not autistic, I would say it would be him. But because he's autistic, it wouldn't be possible for him to play without having the feeling that when he's fed up, he's going to do something wrong. But apart from that, I don't know. I mean, I know that Paddy doesn't like poker. He played poker in, in Italy with the rest of his uh, Italian family and he won every time. Paddy's way too nice for poker. That is, that, that, yeah, that's the issue you with Paddy. their money back. Well, yeah, I mean, I only brought Paddy to the Fitz once and we were actually at the same table and he missed a very obvious value bet on the river. And I said to him afterwards, like, what, why didn't you bet the river? And he said, oh, I'd already taken off of the guy's chips. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a very nice attribute to have as a human being. Um, you can't be a yeah. But you can't be a poker player. That's why I think, actually, of, of the three of them, maybe even if Oshin, you know, got obsessed with poker and got interested, despite his autism, he could still probably be a very good online player. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, in terms of live, I think Fiona gets it almost by default. Yeah, because Fiona is very aggressive. Yeah, really aggressive and ruthless. <laughs> and she also played with her friends. When she was in college, they, they had a game every week, and she was winning most of the time in a very aggressive way. From what I understand, yeah, it got to the stage where they started inventing rules to try and <laughs> curb her, and then she was sending me texts saying, "Is this actually a rule, or are they just making this up?" Um, <laughs> and in most cases, they were making it up. It's good that they had a bit of hustle in them, at least, if they were facing an O'Carney. <laughs> um, so, Mireille, Dara would admit that he's not just a hyper competitive person, but also that he's got a bit of an obsessive personality. I think it's fair to say. Do you like that about him, or do you wish sometimes he was just a bit more easygoing? I think I like it. <laughs> you know, I remember sometimes I was, you know, at the start when he was playing, our life changed basically because Dara was sleeping during the day and he was playing during the night. And at the start I was thinking, what the hell, you know, what do I do? I just, my life is so annoying because I have nothing to do. So, you know, I would have liked him to play less but then I got the habit of what he was doing and then I decided to do other things myself so 
I became fine with the fact that I was up during the day and uh, he was up during the night. So, in fact, I tried to stay a bit longer to have some time with him, like dinner and stuff like that. But I like the fact that he's really into what he's doing and he, he likes doing it. Uh, you're an incredibly charitable person. In fact, David often jokes with me that if he ever goes broke and, and loses all his money, he's going to ask you for loads of our money and you'll probably give it to him. <laughs> me? Yeah, would you? No fucking way. <laughs> oh, this is my retirement plan, Ray. Don't take this away from me. <laughs> your retirement plan. Okay, if you want, but you have to come home and be my cleaning lady then. <laughs> Anything you'd like, Ray. <laughs> Mireille, if you could go back in time, would you try to persuade Dara not to take up poker? I suspect I know the answer to this one. No. I mean, when Dara started playing poker, I was a bit afraid. And when he won, very quickly, and I saw that anyway, it's not the only thing that he was winning. He was going to the fits every week, and every week he was finishing second or third or something. (laughs) Sorry, I love that he was finishing second all the time. What an amazing needle from your wife there, Dara. Basically, that was the way it was going. So I thought, okay, he's so good that he's never going to lose anything. Then I realized that, okay, he, he probably had a bit of um, new people's luck. I don't remember what you call that. But basically, he was very good and he was studying it and he was doing everything to know more and to be better at it. And he was able to do that. So why would I ever have said to him, no, I don't want you to play? Because maybe it gets boring counting all that money at night. <laughs> I never accepted Dara to play cash games. At the start, I was afraid he would lose. And then when I thought that he wouldn't lose, I thought, I don't want him to take money from people that way. I don't want that. If you play a tournament, it's not the same. Hundreds of people or whatever, depending on what you play, are answering the same thing. Yeah, it certainly feels less predatorial, I think, when you're in a tournament. Yeah, yeah, I feel very similarly on cash games. It's just very obvious who the losers are, let's say, and a lot of them are you know, people with problems either in gambling or other areas of their life. Uh, What advice would you give to somebody in a relationship with a poker player if they don't play themselves? Basically, if their partner is starting to play poker, I would tell them to see how it's going. And if after a few weeks they see that they are just losing, I would tell them, okay, tell them, try to tell them to stop, you know, try to explain to them that it's not a way of living if, if you lose your money all the time. If it's somebody you're cashing, then I would say leave it for a few months and see how it's going. Or if it's somebody who is winning very big, I would say, okay, tell your partner to put half of the money that they won into an account to save the money and go on playing with the rest of the money. If the rest of the money is gone, then stop it and tell him, okay, it's finished. And then give that other half of the money to his co-host. For, for what? <laughs> Why is it always you is concerned by everybody? Uh, speaking of partners, if something happened to Dara and you had to marry another poker player, Dara is the last person I'm with. After that, I'm not with anybody anymore. I'm on my own. That's it. If if anything happens to him, so there's not a single poker player you've met over the years who you would even think would be a, a reasonable second place to Dara. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> That's lovely. I, I try not to take that personally. I mean, I don't want to be. I don't want to be nice to anybody. You know, I, I'm not. In fact, uh, not only poker players. Anybody. You know, Dara is the person I married, and after him, it's finished. I mean, I, I'm certain that he's not going to die before me. I'm 11 years older than him, so I don't see how it would be possible. But if it happened for a reason or another, 
that's it for me. I, I'm going to finish my life on my own. You know, my kids are still part of my life and my friends, but I will not marry somebody else. Well, to finish, let's turn away from the subject of death and uh, hit you with the quick fire, Emre. I want a couple of word answers, if you can. First thing that comes to mind when I say the following words. Lappen. David. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. What do you want me to say? Just the first thing you think about this person. Oh, no, you're really bad. (laughs) Okay, David, friend. John O'Croot. John O. Oh, John O. Nice guy. Oh, well, he gets nice guy. (laughs) All right. I see where this is going. Jesus Christ, you're crazy. Hunter has a boy's name. Hunter's a nice baby, but I don't like his name. Strip poker. Not for me. (laughs) Las Vegas. Not for me. (laughs) Rosvedov. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, Ian Simpson's laugh. Oh my God, why do you ask me anything like that? I can't stand his laugh. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think anyone can, Mireille. Well, on that note, our audience went berserk after your hilarious segment last time out, Mireille, and demanded more Mrs. Doak, so I'm so glad we could deliver it to them. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Mireille. Thanks. Thanks very much. <laughs> pop, pop. Playing Us Out this week is a song by a band whose music fans of the show will know without necessarily knowing that they know. Well, one song at least, the opening jingle of this show and the Bop Bops are both borrowed from a fantastic song called Easy Days by a band fronted by my old pal Kevin McNamara. This is another of their tracks from the album Fences and Furnaces. This is Blind Yakety and Dissipate.
again to Jennifer and Murray from our studio in Klonsky, Dublin, to our basement studio in Brighton, to the mobile studio setup we use today. This show has come a long way. I have an enormous list of people to thank, but I'm going to give it a go. Thank you very much to Unibet Poker, especially David Pomeroy, Christopher Burkfell, Natalie Sopakua Peru, Robin Vanden Heuvel, Simon Steedman, Sophie Bennett, My Blime, Leo Wagnius, Patrick Humorish, Tambat and Lenka Kask. Kasia Scanlon and Shirley Ang. Thank you to Heatley Tector, Rob O'Connor and Collie O'Neill. Thank you to Mark Jason James of 23 Digital. Thank you to Rob King and Tom Stanton. 
Members of the poker media have also helped us tremendously over the last few years, in particular Jason Glatzer, Martin Harris, Frank Obdevorda, Christian Zetcher, Barry Carter, Lee Davey, Robbie Straczynski, Josh Barker, Aaron McBride, Kevin Mathers, The Poker Wire and Poker News. Thank you to our former newsman, Dara Davey, who we hope would make a surprise appearance on today's show, but he decided to win loads of money in Prague instead. I also want to give a shout out to some of our most loyal fans, Tony Bateson, Kieran Cooney and of course Donna Dark Angel Morton, Artie Smokes Chap in a Chair More TBC NMP fan and the entire Unibet Poker community Thank you to the members of the Ace High Poker Forum the Canadian Poker Forum the UK Student Poker Forum and Irish Poker Forum On behalf of Darren and I I want to thank our family and friends especially Mireille and Sharon who help us support us and criticise us with their brutal honesty Okay, deep breath now I'm going to attempt a roll call of all our past guests JP McCann, Willie Elliott, Tom Kitt, Fergal Nealon, James Walsh, Chris Dowling, Finton Hand, Kieran Cooney, Kevin Williams, Michael Craig, Ludo Gellich, Nick Newport, Emmett Kennedy, Kevin Killeen, David Curtis, Bridie Gribben, Barney Gribben, Rebecca McAdam, Jason Tompkins, Nick Carrillo, Neil Channing, Annette O'Carroll, Dan Wilson, Andy Black, Espen Yorshad, Ian Simpson, Jamie Berlin, Todd Anderson, Diva Byrne, John Spinks, Mark Convey, Porrick Parkinson, David Von der Hayden, Clodagh Hansen, Jake Cody, Kevin Mathers, Kat Arnsby, Neil Farrell, Tatiana Pasolich, William Kasouf, Nick O'Hara, Kara Scott, Lee Davy, Will Shillaber, Kenny Haller, Dara Davy, Patrick Leonard, Carlos Welsh, John Hesp, Sam Razavi, Jen Tilly, Andrew Brokos, Barney Boatman, Chris Mormon, Alan Widman, Phil Lack, Jason Glatzer, Scott McMillan, Sophia White, Tom Hall, Rauno Taxfunen, Andrew Nimi, Jared Tendler, Charlie Carroll, Jesse McKenzie, Phil Helmuth, Tommy Angelo, Barry Carter, Finton Gavin, Zach Elwood, George Danzer, Ryan LaPlante, Tonka, Paul Jackson, Keith Cummins, Jesse May, Griffin Benger, Mike Leah, Freddie Bergman, Maria Konnikova, Sammy Singh, Jack Sinclair, Ari Engel, Mark McDonald, Samantha Ray, Ken Doherty, Jonathan Little, Mireille O'Carney, Emma Simpson, Sharon Harford, John Byrne, Sam Greenwood, Laura Cornelius, Alex Henry, Maria Ho, Adam Owen, Alan Kessler, Spraggy, Benny Glazer, Chad Holloway, Andy Hills, Jen Shahade, Ben Wilanowski, Robbie Straczynski, Mick McCluskey, Molly Bloom, Nick Newport, Antonio Esfandiari, John O'Crute, Maury Eskandani, Adam Sherman, Stephen Van Zedelhoff, Pablo Rojas, Martinez del Marmol, Matt Berkey, Philip Grusom and Martin Mulsow. Finally, thank you to Diva Byrne and Ian Simpson. We are lucky to have you both on the team. And last but certainly not least, a massive, massive thank you to Willie Elliott, whose creativity and hard work we could not do without. On a personal note, I want to thank Dara, whose generosity to the poker public is unequaled and whose friendship I value tremendously. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel for push notifications of any new content. We'll be back on the airwaves in January with Season 8. I'm not sure exactly when, so do keep an eye on social media for updates. Until then, from Dara, Ian and myself, good night and good luck.